0: Matthew chapter 9 verses 18 through 38. So for the past couple of weeks Matthew's been laying out wonderful miracles of Jesus. Yeah, you know, he's been proving that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. That the works that he did were fulfillments of the predictions in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophesied in many places, there were many prophets that spoke about what the Messiah would be like, and so Matthew has been exposing those works, proving that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. We've seen Jesus' authority and power over sickness, over the elements, over the devil. We've seen Jesus' authority to call sinners to serve, his authority to break from tradition um, when he used the illustration of the old wineskins. It continues this time when we see Jesus also has authority over death. Now, as awesome as seeing miracles, the miraculous unfolding before our eyes, we must remember that these works of power and authority come from a heart of compassion. Sometimes we just think of God as like, he's awesome. He does great things. And he does. But he does these things from a heart of compassion. Now, I don't know if that ministers to you today, but that's really encouraging to me that God is compassionate, that he's merciful. Compassion is a wonderful thing. You know, the Bible says that in end times, that hearts will grow cold. And when I think about that word compassion, I can't help but just kind of scan myself, knowing that the Bible says this about my heart possibly growing cold in end times. And it makes me ask, has my heart grown cold? Has your heart grown cold? Do you have compassion? Compassion's a wonderful thing. Webster's defines it like this: a feeling of wanting to help someone who is sick, hungry, or in trouble. Another online dictionary defines it as this, deep awareness of the suffering of another accompanied by the wish to relieve it. Compassion literally means to suffer together. To suffer together is its literal definition. Jesus displays his compassion in many ways. And in this passage, we see five. Four of them you're familiar with because of the last couple of weeks. But one of them may surprise you. And we'll end up there. Jesus' compassion is expressed through a woman healed and then a girl restored to life. We see that in verses 18 through 26. His compassion expressed in the healing of two blind men and a demon-possessed man being delivered. We see that in verses 27 through 34. And we see Jesus' compassion expressed through believers that are called to serve. And we see that in verses 35 through 38. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshiped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around And when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all that land. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word today, God, we need to hear from you, Lord, and we turn to your word because we know it's the very word of God. We're convinced it's the very words of God. And so, Lord, would you open the scripture to us, Lord? Would you bind our wandering hearts, Lord, the distractions of our hearts, Lord, and would you help us to hear from you? Lord, we know as we approach your word, it's, somewhat about us, but it's about you. And so, Lord, help us to see this through the correct lens today, not through the lens of self and selfishness, Lord, but through the lens of worship and adoration. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Jairus, according to Luke. He was the ruler of the synagogue, responsible for keeping the Torah the order and schedule of worship and the care for the needy. There was a great price for this man to pay to come to Jesus. You see this guy in verse 18, right? He comes to Jesus. There's a great price for him to pay. Why? Because he's, you know, his colleagues, if you will, are going to think of him as a traitor, right? This is a Jewish official of the synagogue, and Jesus at this point is becoming the enemy quickly. And so for Jairus to come to Jesus is going to cost him something. He's, he's going to face ridicule, most likely. Maybe even have his position taken. Right away, there's a lesson for you and me in this. Look at the faith of this man. Because he's desperate, he comes to Jesus. And he doesn't really care what the consequence is because he's desperate. He worships him. He prostrates himself on the floor. He gets down on his knees. He gets down on the floor before Jesus and he worships him. What do you do when you're desperate? Do you go to Jesus? This is what I was asking myself when I read about this man's desperate situation. I thought to ask that question today. What do you do when you're desperate? Do you go to Jesus? A lot of us do a lot of different things. We rely on self, you know, most often, or we try to get advice from a friend, or maybe we type, maybe we go to Dr. Google. <laughs> Dr. Google, tell me what's wrong with me, you know what I mean? maybe I could go to YouTube and I could find out what my problem is. I'm desperate. But do you go to Jesus? Do you go to the one that has the answer? This man knew that Jesus had the answer. He knew he could do something for his daughter. And so even though it was going to cost him something, he came to Jesus and he said, if you'll just lay your hand on my daughter. This man believed that he could bring his daughter back from the dead, but he would have to lay his hand on her. So Jesus arises, or he rose, and he, and he followed him, and so did his disciples. And then they are abruptly interrupted by another needy person. Think of this, verse 20. Suddenly this woman comes who's had a flow of blood for 12 years and just kind of interrupts. Now, think about this. Think about your Iris, and you finally got to Jesus, and you're down worshiping, and you're like, come heal my daughter raise her from the dead. She's died. I need you. And Jesus gets up and says, oh, okay, I'll go. And here comes this woman and, like, interrupts the whole situation, Right? And this made me think of something today, too. I love how Jesus deals with this interruption, and it makes me think about how do I deal with interruptions, you know? Uh, not like Jesus <laughs> a lot of times. But can you think about this? How would this man think, oh, he's on his way to heal my daughter, and now here's this woman, you know? And it doesn't say what, what goes on through this guy's mind, but I just think it's kind of an interesting observation. When you read Scripture, you know, you, you think of these situations. I don't know. You kind of run a movie in your mind. She's had a flow of blood for 12 years. Literally, the Greek word is where we get our word hemorrhaging. She's been hemorrhaging. Now, this isn't um, menstruation. This is abnormal. This is something she's had for 12 years. Now, this is a serious medical issue that this woman has. And Mark adds some details. He says that she'd suffered many things from many physicians, that she'd spent all that she had and was no better. She'd been dealing with a medical issue for 12 years. She'd been to all kinds of doctors. Um, doctors have been telling her this, try this diet, try that diet, try this thing, try this remedy, try that. Nothing has worked. She spent all the money on every infomercial, every different thing, you know, and she's just, nothing works. And all the doctors have, you know, profited, but she has got, you know, no better out of this whole thing. You ever felt like that though, by the way, like you've just been dealing with something for so long and nothing seems to help, right? Maybe you can relate with this woman. Well, this is not only a serious medical, real me- medical issue that she has, but she would also be deemed permanently unclean in a religious sense. Ceremonially, ritually, she would be deemed as permanently unclean. Now, Leviticus 15 says this, chapter 15, verse 25 through 27. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than that of her customary impurity, that's her menstruation, if this is something other than her uh, period, or it uh, runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge, she shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as um, the bed of her impurity. And whatever she sits on shall be unclean and the uncleanness, as the uncleanness of her impurity. Whoever touches those things shall be unclean. He shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and shall be unclean until evening. So these laws in Leviticus, you can study that they were essentially to protect like health and hygiene and things like this. But the worship of God, when a woman had uh, her period or after she'd had a child um, while she was bleeding, she was to stay out of the temple, out of the synagogue, and she was to you know, kind of quarantine herself in a sense. Men, the same thing. If men had I an mean, emission of semen, they were unclean until they went uh, and did a ritual washing at the evening of that night. It's not saying that there's anything bad or dirty or wrong about menstruation. It's a normal thing. God created you to have it. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. It leads to you know, childbearing and all these different things. It's part of God's creation, Um, but you were deemed to be ritually unclean uh, and you couldn't go in the temple and you couldn't go in the synagogue and, and you were, you know, kind of set out for that time. Now imagine this though for 12 years, right? For 12 years, everything according to the Jewish law that this woman sat on was unclean. Everybody that she touched was unclean. Nobody could touch her. Nobody could have anything to do with her because she was unclean for 12 years. Now, Jewish women married very young in this day. So you do the math and you're like 12 years. You know, they married when they were like 14-ish, you know. So if she's had this for 12 years, it's likely she's never been married. Or if she was married, it's likely she's been divorced probably because you couldn't have sexual intercourse during this time either. The, the Levitical law you know, prohibits having sex, you know, when you're menstruating. And so she'd obviously spent a life of loneliness and being alienated. And so it makes sense what it says there in verse 20. That she came from behind and touched Jesus. She knows Jesus cannot touch her. And so she sneaks up to get a touch of his garment. I love what it says there in verse 21. Look at that. She said to herself, I love that. That jumped out at me. Because there's all these things that are probably hindering her, right? Other gospel accounts said the crowd was so thick that it was thronging Jesus. That means it was like elbow to elbow. But yet she pressed up through this crowd, right? She's touching everybody all around her, right? And according, you know, we talked about that. And all these things that would be a hindrance. Oh, this this rabbi, he's he's not going to want to touch me. He's not going to want anything to do with me. He won't heal me. Uh, I'm untouchable. I'm worthless. But she said to herself, if I made just touch his garment, isn't that cool? You know, there's a lot of times in life where there's things that are condemning in your mind. You know, and they try to make these voices, these memories you have, or maybe even the voice of the enemy putting things in you that you feel, sh- you feel ashamed about. You feel dirty, right? But even in the midst of these things, she says, Herself, if I just may touch the hem of his garment. Look at her faith there. She just knows she needs to get to Jesus, right? She touches the hem of his garment. In those days, Jews wore an outer tunic. And what they did in obedience to Numbers 15 uh, and a place in Deuteronomy, what they did was they sewed four tassels on their um, outer tunic. And what those tassels were there for was they were reminders of not to fall into spiritual idolatry. Um, They were to remind you of the commands of the Torah. So actually probably a pretty powerful thing, right? So if you come next week with a new tunic with some tassels on it, you know, I'll, I'll understand why you did it. But you, you would be reminded when you saw those tassels of like, your heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? You're probably getting tempted to idolatry right now, you know, so you'd look at the tassels and you would be reminded to keep Yahweh the center of your life. And so what she did was she came up and she touched probably one of these tassels on his garment, right? Trying to just, you know, I... I I don't want to make him ritually unclean. I just want to kind of sneak in, sneak out. It's kind of an imperfect faith in a way. It's kind of a superstitious faith in a way. It's saying, look, if I just touch this you know, thing, it's, maybe it's a magic tassel or something. You know, It's kind of an incomplete faith. But even with her incomplete faith, she told herself, if I just touch him, I'll get there. And she got there, and she was probably hoping just to just slip through the crowd, just to kind of sneak a healing from Jesus. But then look at verse 22. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now, can you imagine? You're this gal you're trying to just sneak in, and Jesus turns around, and other gospel account says, he goes, who touched me? <laughs> oh, my gosh, it was me. And everybody in the crowd's like, wait a minute, I know her. That's fascinating to me that Jesus would do that. Because not only did Jesus heal her body that day, he restored her back into the community. You see not only is Jesus interested in healing your body, he's interested in restoring you spiritually into a community of people, making you, you know, taking you from being this alien outcast sort of person that you feel like nobody understands you and all this other stuff and and you're alienated and he brings you back and he restores you. That's a beautiful picture there. Your faith has made you well. He also draws attention to this so she will know that it's faith, that it wasn't just magic tassels. It's faith in Jesus that makes you well, faith in Jesus that makes you whole. You get some application from this gal right here. You just, you know, even in her uncleanness, shut out by the law, fully convinced that Jesus could do something about it, she stopped at nothing to get to Jesus. This is a good wake-up call for the 2021 American church because um, there are people out there that are stopping at nothing to get to Jesus. There are people that you can't even get them out of bed to get to Jesus. You know what I mean? There are people that are so preoccupied with anything else but Jesus, right? But this woman, you could not stop her to get to Jesus. That's That's some kind of a check in our heart. I used to read this always thinking about the lens of self. I used to read this story of this woman, and I said, how did she get healed? She believed this, and I was always thinking about it through the lens of self. How can I get healed? Well, faith makes you well. Maybe if I have enough faith, then I'll get healed, or, you know, or whatever. And I was always thinking about it through the lens of self. But today, I, you know, I've been looking at it this week through the lens of worship, that this is all about Jesus. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus and his compassionate touch. I think it's really interesting that Jesus has the authority to heal he has the compassionate, to, you know, compassion to do so. And then faith is where it all intersects, right? Authority, compassion, and faith all intersected there together. That's a beautiful thing. So meanwhile, verse 23, now they pick up on their journey to Jairus's house and uh, there were some flute players and a noisy crowd wailing. Now there's a strange custom that the Jews used to do in this day. They, when somebody would die, um, they would bury him that day. That's not the strange custom. The strange custom is they would hire professional mourners to come and wail at a funeral. And they would just cry out and cry out and say the name of the deceased person and they would wail and they were professionals. They were hired to do it. And the flute players and stuff like that, and and one commentator says that the Jews at this time had everything worked into a system, even mourning, right? Kind of a strange custom, you know? Now, even the poor people would be allowed to by law, even if you couldn't afford it, right? You'd be allowed to. Such a thing. But Jairus, being the ruler of the synagogue, he probably had a whole bunch of people professionally mourning and wailing there. So this was a loud, chaotic scene that Jesus walks into. And he says, make room for the girl's not dead, but she's sleeping. Now, what an interesting picture. Um, You know, Jesus walks into a room where there's a girl that's obviously dead. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen a dead body before, but you can tell when they're dead, you know, like they kind of take on a different sort of look um, right away too. You know, it doesn't take long for that look to set in. When the spirit leaves, like, you know, their, your loved one is gone. They're not there anymore um so they know that she's dead and Jesus walks in and says she's just sleeping now this would have been preposterous to those in the room but when the crowd was put outside verse 25 he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose and the report of this uh, she the report of this went out into all the land I think that's interesting that even behind closed doors Jesus put You know, I've heard people comment on this before. They say, Jesus takes the people without the faith, and he says, get outside. (laughs) Because when he wants to do a work, um, faith is important. Remember why Jesus didn't do any works in his hometown? Because they didn't have faith, right? Jesus takes these people with no faith, and he sets them outside to do a work here. I think that's pretty interesting, though, that even the report spread anyway, even though he did it behind closed doors. So his authority over sickness and death displayed. His compassion for suffering people demonstrated and the faith of these two desperate people. Look at Jesus' compassion displayed in the next section in verses 27 through 34. Two blind men healed and a possessed man delivered. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, see that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. And they went out. as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. So these two blind men, right as soon as Jesus gets done with this situation, uh, there's two blind men there and it says that they followed Jesus. Now I go to Jitters a lot. You guys ever go there? Good coffee. You guys drink Jitters coffee every Sunday. Did you know that? That's why the coffee's so good. They're not paying me for this, by the way, to do an advertisement for them. Just want to. They give us coffee though. They're really nice. But I go there a lot, and there's this gal in there that's. uh, She's blind, and she's there quite a quite a few times that I'm in there. Now she does pretty well. She can get around, and um, she you know has a I don't know what they call the this, it's like a cane you know like and she gets around pretty well. She does okay. But I was thinking about her as I was reading about these two blind gentlemen. You know, even though this gal does pretty well that I, that I know, that I see, she actually works at Hy-Vee, um, it's probably pretty hard to follow Jesus just by his voice, right? But these blind men, they hear his voice and they're following after him. And it makes me think of the faith of these blind men. They know that like, Jesus can do something for them. And so all they hear is his voice and they're following it makes me think about the difficulty involved with following if you're a blind person. You know, it's probably pretty difficult in this day and age. I don't think that you know, things like ADA compliance was, was a thing in these days. And so these men follow after Jesus. And they're calling out, Son of David. Now, that's a messianic title. Um, a title you know, in the book of First Second Samuel you know, talks about how on the throne of David, you know, essentially the Messiah is going to come through the lineage of David. And so when he's using this title, when they're using this title, Son of David, it carries this uh, nationalistic meaning with it. And so that's probably why Jesus doesn't respond to them when he's out, uh, like, until he's behind closed doors, because he's trying to quiet the messianic fervor. Like, Jesus didn't want people drawn to him before the time, you know? And you see that over and over again. So they're saying, Son of David, and have mercy on us. They're appealing to the heart of God. They're saying... um, We know when you're asking God for mercy, you're saying that I know I'm undeserving, right? And they're asking Jesus uh, to do something for them, even though they're not deserving of it. Verse 28, and when they had come into the house, the blind men came to him. Now, this is likely Peter's house in Capernaum. And I like these guys because they just don't even knock on the door as far as we know or anything. They just, they're like, son of David. And they just follow Jesus right into the house. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord, we believe. Right here what we see is God wanting to touch somebody's life, but God wanting them to touch him with faith. God's looking for you to have faith in him trust in him. Do you believe I'm able to do this? Yeah, I believe you're able to do it. He draws that out of them. God wants to touch them, but God wants to be touched with faith. I want to reflect on their faith for a minute because there's a lot of application in it. They followed even though they were blind. It was difficult. It was difficult for these people to get out of bed in the morning and live their life. It really was. But Jesus was so important to them, what Jesus had to offer them was so important to them that they got up and they followed even though it was difficult. And they asked for mercy. That says a lot about their faith also, that they they would ask for mercy. We have a big, huge problem in culture and society today in 2021 is we think everybody owes us something. We think we're deserving of something, right? But these guys, they show what real faith is asking God to have mercy on us, even though we know that we're not worthy and we know we're not deserving. And he asked for mercy. And so he (laughs) says, according to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. God's saying the same thing to a lot of people's uh, lives today. According to your faith, let it be to you. You know, many people settle for less than what God wants to do in their life because they have a lack of faith, right? Maybe you're sitting here today and you say, I don't, you know, I don't know, God doesn't seem to do anything in my life, right? God, I pray God doesn't do stuff. I mean, I don't, I, I hear some Christians in this church talking about how God's always doing things in their life, and I hear other Christians in this church that never have a testimony about God doing anything in their life, Right? Would you say that's pretty true in a lot of churches? There's Christians that are always talking about what God's doing in their life, and then there's other Christians that you never hear them talking about what God's doing in their life. Would you say that's pretty true? Is it maybe because that some of them don't have any faith? or They just don't have a lot of faith? Where Jesus would say, hey, according to your faith, let it be to you. Now, it doesn't mean that according to your faith, God's always going to heal you physically. It doesn't mean that. Because we know there's a lot of cases where God doesn't heal people physically. We know that. But you know, there are a lot of times that God does want to do stuff in your life, but maybe you're missing it because you're not approaching him in faith. You know, the Bible says that we do not have because we do not what? You read that part in James? Yeah, we, you do not have because you do not ask. And there's a lot of people that are missing out on, on a real experience with Jesus Christ because they're just not asking. They're just not having faith. They just don't believe. How do you get some faith? Well, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, right? The more the word of God I put into my mind, the more my faith increases, you know? It's just a pretty simple equation. According to your faith, let it be to you. Might I suggest this? The, The sort of relationship that you're having with Jesus today, it's because of the amount of faith, right? It's, I mean, to some degree, how you're experiencing God is directly proportionate to your faith. Is it right? I mean, according to your faith, let it be to you. I'll tell you what a real good prayer is at this point, is God, increase my faith. Increase my faith. You guys ever pray like that? I get scared to pray like that sometimes because I'm like, Oh, my! the Lord's going to put me in a situation now where I need to have greater faith. You know what I mean? It's kind of a scary prayer. But I guess, you know, you pray like that. Lord, increase my faith. I want to be a man of great faith. Now, as they went out, verse 32, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed, and when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. Now, culturally, interestingly enough, Jewish exorcisms, what they thought was a requirement was that you knew the name of the demon. And so they would, you know, when they're going to do an exorcism, they'd say, what is your name? And the demon would say, my name is Legion, for we are many, or whatever, right? And then the exorcist would call that demon by its name, you know? And, uh, you know, the charismatics sometimes pray like that. They'll be like, spirit of depression, come out of that, you know what I mean? And they'll try to name the spirit, the spirit of anxiety. And I think there's probably some power in that, you know, I don't know. I mean, you're full of faith. You're casting demons out. I mean, I've seen it happen. Um, but it's interesting that this man is mute. He can't reveal the name of the demon. But see, Jesus, it's no problem for him. He's cast the demon out, and the multitudes marvel. They say it was never seen like this in Israel. Yeah, because see what I mean. He, he normally you have to call him by the name to cast him out, but Jesus doesn't uh, need any help. Uh, by any ritual or any cultural thing, Jesus can cast demons out. Jesus can deal with demonic oppression in this room every Sunday. We've seen it here before. Boy, I I I won't even get into that. But the Pharisees said this, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Now, that's a serious accusation right there. To say that the work of God is attributed to the devil that's like me saying, yeah, I, I, my wife's been delivered you know from all kinds of things in her life, but that's because she's possessed by the devil, man, like not only is that just ludicrous, you know, but that's a serious thing. What they are saying is Jesus is using sorcery now that's a capital offense in Israel, so the opposition to Jesus Christ is heating up right now. you know that Jesus was put on a cross and crucified it's starting now, the opposition is starting that's something you as you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, you kind of watch the opposition heating up as it's going. And so these Pharisees, it's pretty interesting because they knew their Old Testament. They knew Jesus was doing the works of the Old, you know, that the Messiah would do, prescribed in the Old Testament. So it wasn't that there wasn't sufficient evidence to trust in Jesus. It was that they had a willful heart. Their their heart was willfully disobedient. And that's the same thing with people that reject Jesus today. It's not that there's not evidence of Christ. It's that you have a willful heart that wants to continue in darkness. So you want to you get rid of all this stuff that's about goodness and light. You know? And so you, you want to continue in your darkness so you willfully choose to push Jesus off. And that's what they were doing there. So, I told you that one of the ways that Jesus displays his compassion may surprise you. And that's where we are now. Verse 35. Jesus' compassion displayed through believers that are called to serve. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's kind of a summary statement of Jesus' Galilean ministry in verse 35. He goes out through all the cities, villages, teaching, preaching, healing every sickness and every disease among them. That's a tremendous work of the Lord that he's doing. That's a summary of Jesus' uh, Galilean ministry. But look at verse 36. When he looks out at the multitudes, I mean, if you've been paying attention through the beginning of chapter 8, like, it's been one thing after another after another with needy people coming to Jesus, right? Just needy person after needy person. And he goes through, and he's healing multitudes of people, and it's just the need is so huge. And he looks out at those people, and he thinks, oh, my gosh, I can't believe there's more... No, he doesn't do that at all. He just looks at them with compassion. He looks at needy people with compassion. That was a huge challenge to me when I was reading this uh, today, or this whole week, because I, I'm kind of convicted that I don't know if I would look out at a sea of needy people and say, "I have compassion on them." You know, I mean, to be honest, I'm I'm kind of like 2021. 20, you know what I mean? I'm kind of, I'm sort of worldly, you know what I mean? Like I like my comfort. I like my you know, I like my me time, you know what I mean? It's sad, but you know, I mean, that's kind of not saying it's bad to have some me time or anything, but I'm really challenged by the fact that just needy person after needy person comes to Jesus. Interruptions happen to him. He never loses his cool. He never like scolds anybody. He never snaps at anybody. I mean, it doesn't tell us what he's, you know. I guess it tells us what he's thinking here, but I'm I'm assuming he's not thinking, "Oh, great, more needy people. Great, I got to disciple these people. Great, I got to share the gospel with these people." Like he doesn't come off like that, you know. This is really challenging to me because I, I got a threshold, you know, I, and it's low. <laughs> it's lower than most people. I look at my wife. My wife wants to do things for people all the time. That's just Aaron's nature. My nature is I want to do things for people sometimes. You know, it's just my nature. I want to spend time alone and and be self-centered, you know, to be honest. If I be honest, my flesh is wicked. Paul says there's not one good thing that dwells in my flesh. My flesh is wicked, right? But Jesus looks out and he's moved with compassion. That's the strongest word in the Greek that anybody could use for the display of compassion. The strongest word that the Bible could use. I'm not sure what you think God is like, but God is compassionate. It says in the book of Exodus, do you remember when God took Moses and he put him in the cleft of the rock? Remember what we showed to him, Whatever he said to him? He says, um, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, right? Moses says, show me, let me see you. He says, you can't see me. And so he puts him in the cleft of the rock and he says, I'll just pass by you. And, you know, you'll see the afterglow, essentially. And while he's in there, this is what God says. I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The Lord's compassionate. God is compassionate. Psalm 86, 15 says, but you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in mercy and truth. I need that. I need God's mercy. I need his compassion and I really need him to help me be more like him. why was he compassionate what was what triggered this because he looked out and they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd that word in the greek that word sheep is the word poimen it also is translated as pastor as leader as you know teacher and he looks out at these jews that are weary they're beaten down and he says um, i have compassion on them. they're they're scattered as if they have no shepherd now This is kind of fascinating because these Jews had all kinds of leaders, didn't they? Didn't these Jews have all kinds of leaders? I mean, the religious authorities are all over, the scribes and the Pharisees. But Jesus looks out at this group as though they had nobody because these leaders were worthless. These people that were serving here were worthless because they weren't, they don't, they didn't care about people. They liked the position They liked the fact that they could get up in front of people and talk. They liked the fact that they could serve. They liked how it made them feel in some way or another, right? But they didn't have compassion and empathy for the people. And so Jesus said, you know what? You leaders are worthless. It's like they don't even have any, right? God looks out at people today. He looks out at people today and he says, these people are weary. They're getting taught pop psychology getting given a pep talk rather than fed the word. <laughs> he looks out at the homes where dads aren't pastoring the, the kids, and he goes, "There's are sheep without a shepherd. The bad news is those they do have a shepherd, it's YouTube. <laughs> it's Snapchat. It's TikTok. That's their shepherd. He looks out at the families that are broken. He says, there's people, these are sheep without a shepherd. He's got compassion, and he wants to love them. He wants to show them love. He wants them to, he wants them to be taken in. He wants them to be shepherded. That's God's heart. God's heart is he wants people to be shepherded. This is so challenging to me. I'm standing up before you as a pastor and I'm like, man, oh man. I, you know, I sure hope that Jesus wouldn't come in here and look out at all of you and say, oh, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Oh my God. If I hear that when I stand before him. He says to his disciples, this is, this is what I think is fascinating. This is the word that the Lord gave me this week. Like, this is, you know, this is what he impressed in my heart. Maybe this will minister to you. The way that God wants to express his compassion is not only in these miraculous works that he did, not only in the healing and the salvation that he brings to people, but he looks to his disciples while he's looking out at this multitude of people with needs. He's looking at them with compassion. He looks out and he says, hey, These people are sheep without a shepherd. And so, what he does is he says, The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. He's looking out at a group full of people that need spiritual healing, they need a spiritual shepherd. And so what he says to him is he goes, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. In other words, there are people out there ripe that need somebody to share the gospel and to disciple them. They are everywhere. They're all around you. But there's a shortage of people that want to get involved in doing the very things Jesus has asked us to do. There are people all day long that want to consume a Bible study. All day long. There are people that feel very spiritual about how many teachers they can quote and how many scriptures they've memorized and how many Bible studies they go to a week. But when it comes down to shepherding and to loving and to caring for the flock, Jesus says, the laborers are few. This is tragic. There's two pictures here. There's a picture of a flock of diseased sheep with, you know, so much stuff collected in their, in their you know, their, uh, wool and everything. They need a shepherd to come heal them. They've got bugs all in their ears. They're sick. They need shepherding. They need pastoring, right? And they're everywhere. And that's the one picture. And then the other picture is like, you know, we'll relate with this. We're farm people. There's, there's a whole field out there. And when you're saying, and you're looking, you're saying, man, it's fall time. Is anybody going to go harvest this thing? And the whole crop just goes to crap, right? And so what Jesus says is he goes, I want to display my compassion through laborers. That's amazing, isn't it? I told you this one, would, it might surprise you. Because we think the only way Jesus displayed his compassion was through the, you know, the miracles and the healings and all the things that he did. And the loaves and the fishes and, and raising people from the dead. And we think that's the only way that Jesus displayed his compassion. But Jesus also wants to display his compassion through you. Through you. That's amazing. He says the need's great. So what he says is, I want you to pray. I want you to pray that the Lord will send out laborers. Now, a lot of you are sitting here going, oh, cool. He's not talking about me. He's just, all I got to do is pray that God will send somebody else. No. 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 That's been going on for a couple hundred years in church in America where 98% of the people come and sit and 2% of the people do the work. That's been happening for a long time. Barna studies reveal that where most churches, most people come in and they just come in and enjoy Bible study. They have coffee and donuts. They, you know, they, you know, Uh, pretend like they're real holy for like two hours and then they go back to their worldly life all week long. You know what I mean? And I hate to be hardcore, but that's how a lot of people are. They pretend while they're, you know, I'm not trying to be rough. I'm not trying to be harsh, but, you know, that's that's why you like me is because I call it what it is, right? And that's been church for the longest time is, Lord God, there's such a need out there. Send him. (laughs) But that's not the heart. That's not the heart that Jesus is getting across. Jesus is saying, look, these people need compassion these people need compassion and I want laborers to go and so you should pray that God would send laborers into his harvest but you should pray also that if he wants to send you that you were going to go right God has called every Christian turn over to Matthew chapter 8 or uh, 28 okay turn over to Matthew chapter 28 in your bible please I just think that this is the coolest thing that somebody that came from a life of like drugs and abuse and manipulation and crime, that God could turn them around and he could want to like display his compassion to a hurt and broken world through somebody like me. I think that's the coolest thing. You know, do you, do you feel like that today? I mean, because I'll tell you what, I went from a life of feeling like, you know, I could make money. Oh, that's great. What do you do with money? You know, you, you save up your money, then you hand it off to some kid. Your kid blows all the money. and they, <laughs> What do you do with money? You know, or you could, you could live a life for a million different things. But I'll tell you what, living a life as someone that's distributing God's compassion, man, there's nothing like that. God's given you that blessed opportunity. To be a compassion distributor. That's a blessing. It's to comfort people, just to bring healing, to bring the gospel to them. Matthew chapter 28, verse, um, I'll just get there and then we'll read it together. Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 18. Jesus, um, he came and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me. We're talking about his authority. Right? His authority over the sickness, over the death, over healing, over, all over the weather, all over everything. Jesus has ultimate authority. And he says, all authority has been given in heaven uh, to me in heaven and on earth. So in other words, what Jesus is about to say right there is he's saying, I have absolute authority over you, over, over me. So what I'm about to say after this is coming on all the authority of everything. right? So I just want to preface what Jesus is saying. by by really bringing that out. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is Jesus Christ's great commission to all Christians, right? I was talking with my brother-in-law the other day. And he said, at their church, they took this like they had. A, they've had a couple of different pastors in and out, but one of them came in and was like so serious about this that he said, "Look, if you're going to go to church here, I want every one of you right now to write down a name of somebody that needs Jesus. And next week, when you come back here, we're going to talk about how it went when you went and shared Jesus with them, <laughs> right? And uh, that's heavy duty, right? Like literally saying." If you're going to continue to go to church here, you're going to do this. Because this is what Jesus has called us to do. I heard of another pastor that he came in to fill in in a church, and um, he was going to be there for a few months. And he said, open your Bible to Matthew 28, verse 18. And he read this, and he's, he just read this. And he said, okay, go do it. It was like a five-minute sermon. You guys are like, yeah, I like that. I got you chairs so you could listen to a good Bible study. And then, so guess what? He said, go do it. And then they all came back next week and he opened his Bible and he said, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And they read it again. And then finally one day comes up, you know, they come up to him after service, pastor, why do you keep reading this over and over again? And he goes, until you guys start doing it, I'm not teaching another message. You know, and he kept saying it over and over again. And, you know, Friends, Christianity is not about you. It's not about you. You know, through psychology, telling us that self-esteem is the most important thing that we could ever have, through the world, filled with its commercialism and all of its products, we're in that time of year where everybody's asking you what you want for Christmas. I don't want it to be about me for Christmas. That's what I want. Jesus Christ, Christianity is not about you. It's not about me. For wherever you're here today, I want you to understand that Christianity is not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. This book is not a therapy manual of how to fix yourself. It's not about that. That's a byproduct. That is a byproduct that happens of denying yourself and following Jesus wholeheartedly and denying self saying, you know what, self-esteem, what I'm going to do with my life, all this other stuff, you know, that's, that's okay, you know, what I'm going to do and all this stuff. But it's all about him and what he wants to do through your life. This is why some of you are so miserable today is because all you think about is yourself. That's all you think about. You think, I've got this disorder, I've got that. I've got this worry, I've got this problem, I've got that. This is why so many people are so miserable because you're obsessed with self. I know because I'm one of them. I'm like that. I've been down that path of absolute misery where the biggest question on my mind is how does it affect me, a narcissist? But Christianity is not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. And when you put your eyes on him and we say, you know what, God, you created me for you. God gave you the hair on your head for you, for, for him, not for me. <laughs> I was trying to think about it. Like, it was like maybe the hair isn't the best thing. He gave you the breath in your lungs for him. He gave you the, the eyes that you have to look at him, to see the field. He gave you the voice that you have to share the gospel, to sing praises to him. Everything that he's given to you, is given for him. He's called you to be a laborer in his harvest. That just really stuck me that God has compassion and what he wants to do is he wants to display that compassion through you to people. He wants you to be an agent of healing, of compassion in your homes. If you're a dad here today, you're to be the pastor of the home. You're to bring Jesus Christ into your home. You're to get out this Bible, and you're to start taking your kids through this, and you're to start, to start to disciple them through this. You're to bring the gospel. You're to bring Jesus Christ. If you're a mom, you're to be engaged with getting the Bible out and discipling your kids, right? This is what dads are to do. I see there's some dads in here. Dads, your number one mission as far as the Bible is concerned is to raise Christian kids. You're to be the pastor of the home. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Look, if you're single here today, if you're a single person, you're to be using your singleness to labor in the kingdom. You know, you're know, you not to be wasting all this time thinking about how lonely you are and, oh, I wish if I just had a husband or if I just had a wife, then I could be. You're not to be doing that. You're to be laboring in the kingdom. If you're married here today, you're not to be sitting here bickering with your spouse over and over again, arguing about stupid stuff like what kind of bush you're going to put in your front yard or what kind of color. you know you're not supposed you're just not supposed to waste time on that stuff you're to use your marriage to glorify God and to labor in the kingdom every one of us in this room is called to labor in his kingdom and to glorify him that's what we're all called to do to be distributors of his compassion of his mercy of the gospel i hope this is challenging to you you know i hope it is but i hope that it man just Oh, I hate the fact that by the time that we get to the parking lot, you know, what, what, what's going to happen? Where are we going to eat? Guys, I got to warn you. If this doesn't translate to action in your life, you got to check yourself, man you got to check yourself to see if you're really a Christian. You really do. You might show up here and sit in a chair, but you've got to really check yourself to see if you're a Christian, man, because if you are, you want to do what Jesus has called you to do. If you don't, you've got, I mean, if you're, if you're wrestling, you've got some things to lay aside today. He has called us to be distributors of his compassion. Maybe some of us need to ask him to pull the, the calluses off of our heart because we've, we're lacking compassion. Maybe we look at the needs of the world around us. Maybe we look at the needs of our own kids spiritually, and we say, hey, let somebody else take care of it. Let the Sunday school take care of it. We'll just put them back there, and then they'll come out Christian. doesn't work like that. Maybe, maybe our marriages. maybe we're just saying, look, um, you know, let her figure it out. You know, I'm, just, I'm not going to take the role in my marriage that God said that I'm supposed to be. I'm not going to be the leader of the home. I'm just going to let her figure it out have to stop with this kind of stuff. I'm just going to go to the church. I'm going to let Adam handle it. I'm going, to let the, I'm going to let Rebecca handle it. I'm going to let all these guys that are serving here, you know, Rose, she's handling the coffee. She's getting involved in service. I'm just going to let all them handle it, right? You can't do that. You can't do that. God's got a, God's got a plan for you. And it's for you to be part of laboring in his kingdom. And part of me is always tempted to to put it to you like this and to say, you know what, but nothing's going to be more fulfilling anyway. But guess what I'm doing when I do that? I'm trying to manipulate you based on self. I'm trying to put following and serving Jesus to you in a way that stimulates your selfish nature and saying, look, hey, it's the best, most fulfilling thing that you'll ever do in your life. That might be true, but that's not the reason for doing it. The reason for doing it is he's worthy. He sprung you from death. Oh, man. Christianity is not about you. It's not about me. It's all about him. Heavenly Father, would you send laborers into the harvest? And would you send us, Lord? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.